0: Hello and welcome to The Bravest Kind, a podcast featuring behind-the-scenes stories of fearless individuals demonstrating bravery and kindness in their everyday lives. I am your host, Ryan Schaefer, and I am a firefighter and EMT with the Kirkland Fire Department located just outside of Seattle, Washington. My guest today is Tyler Farah. Tyler is a former professional cyclist, having retired from the UCI World Tour in 2017, Among his many career accomplishments, Tyler is one of only two Americans ever to have won a stage at each of cycling's three Grand Tour events, the Tour de France, the Giro d'Italia, and the Vuelta a España. Tyler and I discuss why his stage victory at the Tour de France left him feeling unfulfilled and how his career was nearly derailed following the death of his close friend during a crash at the Giro d'Italia. We also talk about life as a professional athlete how his continued need to test his physical limits keeps him grounded and focused, and his new career as a firefighter. Tyler also reflects on his growth as an individual throughout his cycling career and his desire to live a purposeful life, traits we can all learn and benefit from. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Have with me today, Tyler Farah. Tyler, first and foremost, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, happy to be here. So, for everyone listening, I know Tyler because we are fellow firefighters at the Kirkland Fire Department. You came on board what about three years ago now? Yeah, I think I'll be three years in September, so getting close. Okay, right on, man. And one of the really interesting things I have found uh, about this career is it really seems to. Uh, pull people from a wide variety of backgrounds. I know we've got a former NFL player at our department, a former professional soccer player. It seems like a lot of people that worked in corporate America and plenty of people with an entrepreneurial spirit and side hustles. Uh, But I think you have one of the more fascinating backgrounds as a former professional cyclist and really somebody that reached the highest levels of the sport. So before we get into that and some of your accomplishments, I'm curious as to what got you involved in the sport of cycling to begin with? Um,
1: you know, growing up, both my parents rode bikes, not competitively, mm-hmm. but just for pleasure. Um, and I grew up doing that. Um, and I was just a really competitive kid, mm-hmm. kind of have to be to become a professional athlete. Sure. <laughs> Um, but I'm terrible at ball sports, (laughs) any of the traditional, like baseball, basketball, football, soccer, Mm -hmm. I'm just pathetic. And, uh, so as a kid, it was like, I tried all those sports. I played them. I wanted to be an athlete and it was just embarrassing. And I, but it kind of like, well, I'm, you know, 11 years old and I can keep up with my dad on bike rides. And I was doing that. Um, I was cross country ski racing as well. Um, I grew up in Wenatchee and there's a really good, uh, Nordic skiing program mm-hmm. in Leavenworth. So I was doing that and yeah, I just love riding my bike a lot and begged and begged my parents to take me to a bike race and finally did one when I was 12 or 13 years old and it kind of clicked right away. Um, And yeah, the rest was history,
0: I guess. So you grew up in Wenatchee. Were there a lot of outlets and opportunities for someone pursuing the sport of cycling in that area uh, and in Washington and the Northwest in general? Um, In Washington, there was a decent setup. In Wenatchee, when I was a kid, there was
1: absolutely not. Um, There were like two or three other people in the whole city that raced bikes. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it just wasn't popular. People rode bikes, but just for fun, racing wasn't really a thing. Um, and all the races pretty much are over on the West side. Okay. Um, so until I turned 16 and got my driver's license, um, my parents just every weekend from March through September, we spent the weekend over on the West side of the state at whatever bike race was happening. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they, they invested a whole lot in it. Um, it's cool. The, the way it's grown, uh, Wenatchee has kind of turned into a bit of a cycling hub in the state now. They've, the city itself has embraced it uh, as far as like they've done a lot of mountain bike trail development and all that. And they have a really cool high school mountain bike team program well. going there now. And a lot of pretty talented kids
0: are actually coming out of Wenatchee uh, these days. And is that kind of specifically uh, mountain biking when you say when you say a lot of talented kids coming out of there? Or is that a mix of mountain biking and and road racing? A little bit of both, probably a little mm-hmm. more on the mountain biking side
1: because mm-hmm. Wenatchee's become like a destination for mountain biking in the state, and so and then they have that high school program that's turning into just an awesome talent development pipeline for kids. Because um, that's the thing about the sport in America is a lot of these super talented kids end up running track in high school or right. cross country, and they don't go down the cycling route. Mm-hmm. They ha- they totally have the engine, uh, but they just weren't exposed to it. And Now getting Getting more kids exposed to it at the high school level, it's just
0: talent identification, really. Absolutely. Yeah, and you're getting these kids out there. Well, I was going to talk to you a little bit about that, and I will here in just a moment about being an American cyclist. But back to the growth of this sport in Wenatchee, do you feel as though your success has anything to do with that and the fact that that has become such a popular sport in your hometown?
1: Oh, I don't know. It probably didn't hurt. Um you know, having a local kid come mm-hmm. up and and make it and be you know competing in those races that everyone who likes cycling pays attention to, I'm sure helped. yeah um, but like I say, I think the biggest thing is that community, the local bike clubs done a ton of heavy lifting there to just create events for kids, create the the kind of setup for them to explore the sport and decide if it's something they're interested in. so, yeah. I mean, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm sure I was a contributing factor. It's always good to have someone who's succeeding that you can look up to as a kid. Um, sure. But I, I think it's more the, the grassroots level in the town that's really caused that to
0: take off. Yeah. You started this sport, you said what, around 11, 12? Is that? I think I was 12 when I went to my first race. Yeah. 12. Okay. So then what's the path that you took to gaining sponsorship and actually becoming a professional cyclist?
1: Um, so I started going to the junior national championships when I was 14 for the first time. Um, they kind of break it into two year chunks for age categories, like 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Uh, when I was 14 was the first time I went and I won two national championships that time, uh, which was kind of a good indicator that (laughs) I could maybe start going somewhere. And that became my family's summer trip every year was wherever the national championships were. That's where we went. And yeah. they're not in cool places. It's not like <laughs> they don't have the national championships in Maui. Like, right. <laughs> you know? But uh, my parents, like I say, uh, they, they really supported it. And they took me wherever I needed to go for those. And I basically just kept winning national championships at my age yep. category. Um, so once I won when I was 16, that put me into the junior national team pipeline when I turned 17. Um, and once you're in that, you, you start doing national team training camps. They started taking me to Europe, uh, racing the junior world cup races, um, And so I did that for two years and kept winning races, basically just whatever level they kept pushing me to Hmm. I was still getting results and winning, getting like top tens at the world championships, that kind of thing.
0: Now, at this point, are you still going to high school uh, as on a regular basis or are you homeschooling? What was that like as you're traveling around the world? I was still in
1: high school. Uh, I'm not going to lie. My my schooling definitely suffered uh, once I got on the junior national Mm -hmm. team. Um, My school was very accommodating. Um, you know, I, we had a culture in our school that prioritized athletes or encouraged yeah. athletics. They understood what I was doing and they worked with me a lot. Um, I was basically doing distance learning before yeah. distance learning. <laughs> right. was <the> thing. Absolutely. <laughs> like, yeah. And they, they also, my senior year, I already was offered a pro contract in my senior year for the next of high school to turn pro Got the it. next year. So I knew I was in that pipeline and they let, they worked with me to actually let me take a reduced class load where I was just kind of getting the the requirements so that I could graduate. Mm-hmm. And I was actually, a, you know, in my senior year, I think I was going to school like three hours yeah. a day uh, so I could train the rest of the day. And they worked around my race schedule
0: and okay. all that. Um, so I was, I was lucky that they were willing to do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, you talked about how so many uh, American athletes that have the engine, that have the motor to do a sport such as cycling, maybe find other outlets such as track and field, what have you. What is it like being an American in a sport that is primarily popular in Europe, especially as a young kid coming out of high school, receiving that pro contract? And I'm sure most of your uh, time was now spent living in Europe. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's a little weird. It's probably changed now, just the sport is a little more popular mm-hmm. now than when I yeah. was a kid. Um, you know, no one paid attention to cycling when I was a kid. Even still I and mean, people only pay so much attention, but I think it's a little more in the public conscious these days. But yeah, I mean, I was it was kind of pre internet days yeah. or real internet days that we know now. So I was watching VHS cassettes of races <laughs> and you know, like just <laughs> yeah, yeah. trying to like Track down weird, obscure, like Italian bike racing magazines that I couldn't even Mm -hmm. read, like and check it out. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it was it was cool. It was kind of like oh, this like you know, Europe was this romantic foreign place to go and and live the dream, Mm -hmm. basically. Yeah. Uh, So I was pretty into it. That being said, there's there was quite a few guys who I kind of came up through the junior national team racing with who. Certainly on a physical level physical level were just as talented as me definitely had the ability to to make a full pro career mm-hmm. and basically couldn't hack it with the homesickness Is that right? to europe um, you know you you'd get over there and you'd be there for even on the junior national team six weeks at a time and you know and again this was kind of the day's pre facetime sure. pre you know like having us everyone having a smartphone and you know whatsapp or messaging or whatever, it was like, you'd like schedule calls with your family and it cost a lot of money for international calling. And so it was like (laughs) totally restricted and yeah, it was, it was a lot more challenging in those days than it is now with, you know, the world as it is with instant communication. I think it's a little easier, but it's still culture shock. You're still not at home. Um, you know, and some guys can get over there and flourish. Some guys get over there and do well enough to do it and it kind of breaks some guys, um, you know, so luckily for me, I viewed it as a as a big adventure. And mm-hmm. you know, I was into it. I thought it was awesome to go
0: over there and live over there and travel around. Absolutely. And are you basically living with fellow members then from your team? Is that is that more early on? Setup? You are when, I, yeah. when you're going over there with the junior national team, mm-hmm. you are when I bumped up to the
1: at the time it was called the pro tour now it's called the world tour okay. uh, basically the top tier yep then you're making a real salary yep. you you get your own place you do you you've made it at that point and you're a grown up <laughs> um, but yeah those early days when you're you're over there like the US national team had a house in Belgium okay that they could house like 20 of us in it. and it was a bunch of like 18 19 20 year old kids yeah. who like never been away from home before right. Right. Like just going and living in this house, it was disgusting. Yeah.
0: <laughs> like was we like also <laughs> your own little uh, your own little fraternity house, there, huh?
1: Big time. There was a <laughs> lot of growing up for all of us uh, sure. in that setting. Sure, but it was actually fun too,
0: right? Oh you my know, gosh, I can only imagine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Professional cyclist at a at a house with other competitors. Yeah, living in Belgium, I can imagine you had a little bit of fun along the way. Oh, yeah. For sure. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we did that. Like I, t- like I say, I turned pro straight
1: out of high school um, on the U.S. circuit, mm-hmm. which would be like to kind of make a comparison. would be like playing in the minor leagues yeah. in baseball on the U.S. circuit. Uh, and so I did that for three years where I was racing in America part time. And I was going to Europe still with the national team for like specific events. Yeah. Um, I kind of had a balanced program where I was about 50-50, okay. um, which was nice. It was a way to make a little bit of money. You know, at least enough to like have an apartment and not live at home, sure. which I didn't want to do when I was 19 years old. Um, so I was doing that and then having success there. Won, won some pro races in America, won some of the really big, uh, they have an under 23 category mm-hmm. um, over there. That's kind of the, the final stepping stone before going pro. I uh, won some of the real big races in the under 23 category over there. Again, got some results at the world championships. And got offered a a pro contract at again at that time called the pro tour uh, with a French team. And that's so 2006 when I was 22 is when I made the, uh, the jump to the top, gotcha top tier. All right. And that was a culture
0: shock. I can only
1: imagine on a French team living in France when you don't speak French. Uh, that first year was pretty rough. (laughs) I did a lot of growing up that year. I can imagine Um, talking about
0: uh, being homesick probably at that point, maybe more so.
1: Luckily my, uh, my now wife, uh, we've been, been together since we were in high school. Um, she, she graduated college in June of that year mm-hmm. and moved, moved right over That's with right. me. And yeah, so that was probably a big part of my success. Absolutely. Right. have somebody um, to help anchor, anchor you there. Big time. She uh, kind of created an actual home yeah, uh, over there as opposed to what I had been doing until she got over there, which was like an empty apartment mm-hmm. with a bed and one chair.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> it was really grim and depressing, but uh <laughs> uh, true bachelor yeah. living right there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Not glamorous. Yeah. So, Tyler, I've always found cycling to be very interesting because it's this individual sport, but especially at the highest levels that you're talking about, you're still on a team. And I know there's different specialties. Uh, you, if I'm not mistaken, were more of a sprint specialist. I know there's all like, what, domestiques and what have you. And then mm-hmm. you've got your your, your your top dog on the team. How is that hierarchy typically established and is there a lot of infighting that often occurs there within a team or is everybody on the same page and everybody knows their role even, even though it is this individual sport, but wrapped within a team environment.
1: Yeah. Cycling is interesting. It's, it's an, it's a team sport with individual glory, basically. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, the team all sells out for one guy and then he's the guy that gets to get his picture in the magazines and stand on the podium and be famous. Yeah. Right. When he wins. Um, But that being said, it's a sport, like it pays its athletes well. Like Mm -hmm. when you get to that level, the infighting tends to go away. Okay. Um, But like those roles in the team are very fluid too, where I was a sprinter and a one day classic specialist. So in the one day classics, I was at the peak of my career, the the guy that people were working for. Got it. Yep. Um, But then at other races in the year, I might be using a race for training. Um, You know, I would have raced and taken a break. Um, and then I'd be coming back and I'd be using that race for training. I'd be writing as a domestique to help someone else at that yeah. race doing support. Even when I was a sprinter at like the tour de France, um, you know, the team has multiple goals. Like they want to win stages on the sprints, but they might have a writer who's competing in the general classification for the overall, um, sprinting is a lot about positioning. So I was really good at it. So the first week I would be focused on the sprints. The team would be writing for me. We would hit the mountains and it would be my job to position our climber classification guy coming into the bottom of the important climbs so that he could start in front and have the best, the best shot. So that those roles are fluid throughout even a season.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But it's pretty ruthless. Like you're mercenaries and the team wants to win and they don't really care who on the team wins as long as the team wins. So they're. If you're, even if you're the big star that they're paying, you know, yeah. the top salary, yeah. if you're having a rough year and there's some young kid who's riding mm-hmm. well, they'll bump you pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's definitely uh what, what have you done for me lately? Oh, big time. Yeah. And then you, your, your role evolves over time too. At the end of my career, I wasn't as fast anymore. Um, and I kind of morphed into a road captain's role okay. because at that point I'd been racing for a long time. I had a ton of experience. Yep. yep but I wasn't fast enough to win anymore mm-hmm. it just wasn't there they could write, if the team rode for me on a great day maybe I'd get fourth okay. you know and, and that it's wins it's winning or nothing at, the, at in that and that level sport. so mm-hmm. then I just became the guy to like make the calls on the road
0: kind of a thing and you know guys guys roles evolve yeah. over the course yeah, of their career yeah kind of more like you said a captain understanding what everybody else's roles are right and putting the team in the in the best best place for success. Big time. And, you know, it's the same races every year. So you learn the race.
1: Um, so once you've gone to like the one day classics where my specialty, I had those court, the courses memorized and, you know, I, I raced tour of Flanders, which is like my favorite race and one of the biggest in the world. I think I did it 11 times in my career. So, you know, you can give a lot of share a lot of knowledge to the young guys who are super talented but just don't have that yeah.
0: experience yeah yet. is the tour of flanders that the one that's it goes over a lot of like bumpy cobblestone and yeah. stuff is it, okay yeah i feel like i've seen a documentary maybe on that yeah it's cycling's the number one sport
1: in belgium okay. um, flanders is the dutch region mm-hmm. of belgium and uh it's like it's the super bowl yeah there are the population of flanders off the top of my head i want to say is like a few million maybe it's like four or five million. Mm. There are over a million people on the side That's of the right. road watching the tour. Of Crazy. Flanders. Yeah. It's chaos. Um, but yeah, the, the spring classics, they're all those cobblestone races. Yeah. They happen in March and April okay. when the weather's just terrible and it's no big mountains. It's a lot of short, steep, really steep, punchy <laughs> climbs. And you know, I, I was too yeah. big. I was never a mountain climber.
0: Um, but I was good at those races mm. and they were just kind of last man standing affairs. Got it. Now, doing some research on you, Tyler, I actually read that you are that you were hugely popular in Flanders. Is that true? <laughs> I read that somewhere that you speak Dutch fluently and that you were, yeah, that your popularity was at its highest in the Flanders region of Belgium. Yeah, well, like I say, it's the number one sport there, um, mm.
1: and I, I moved there. I say I, I turned pro on a French team, and we lived in France that first year, okay. and it wasn't a good mm. fit for us. We were living down in the south of France uh, by Nice, and it was really just. A touristy area. It yep. wasn't my speed. It's a great place to visit. I didn't want to live in a in a tourist trap. Um, yep. But I'd been living up in Belgium with the U.S. national team in that house, so I kind of had some familiarity there. So we we're like, okay, we don't want to live in France. Where are we going to go? I liked Belgium. I'm like, let's give Belgium a try for a year. Um, so we moved up to Ghent, which is a pretty cool city in Flanders. Um, it's the biggest college in the country is in Ghent. Okay, and. We were like, we'll try it for a year. If we don't like it, we'll move somewhere else. And we lived there the rest of my career. We just loved it. Got it. That was
0: always your home base.
1: Yeah, we were 23 years old. You know, We were the same age as all the college kids in town there. It was really easy to make friends. Um, And yeah, I I like foreign languages. I'm just interested by it. I think it's fun to learn them. Um, So I put in a lot of effort to become fluent. And no one really bothers to become fluent in Flemish. So just the fact that I did that and that I could give interviews in Flemish and Mm -hmm. go on Flemish TV
0: for the like post race analysis and stuff, people thought it was cool. Absolutely, yeah. You you endeared yourself to to the locals, I'm sure. Yeah, Uh, very cool. Uh, So, Ataya, you accomplished a lot. In your career. And you won six Grand Tour stages individually. Mm -hmm. I know you're also a part of some team trial wins. And for those listening not familiar, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm certainly no uh, expert here, but the Grand Tours, those are the uh, tours of Spain, Italy, and of course the Tour de France. So if you equate it, like I was a big tennis player. And in tennis, you have the four Grand Slam tournaments, be it the Australian Open, the French Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open. So these are the three grand multi-stage races. Yep. Yeah, those are like the three at the top. There's a lot of races yep. that are a week long. Um okay. Unless there's only those three that are three weeks long. Got it. Right. Those those are really the big ones. So you won six individual stages amongst those three. And if I'm not mistaken, you're one of only two Americans. Yeah. That's ever won a stage at each of those three grand tours. Is that correct? Uh, Yeah, I believe so. It's not not very common to, to pull that off, I guess. Yeah. So that's, I mean, obviously a a huge, huge deal. I'm curious, what would you consider to be your greatest achievement as a cyclist? You know, it's funny that question. Um,
1: I can tell you what on paper is my greatest achievement. It's certainly Mm -hmm. not the one that means the most to me. (laughs) Um, but yeah, winning, I want to stage at the tour de France. Uh, everyone, everyone would say that would be like my biggest achievement. Um, but I wouldn't even put that in my top five most special victories to me. Um, Is that right? Yeah, I never really enjoyed the tour when I was a writer. It's uh, it's just this like media zoo. It's really chaotic. It's really stressful.
0: Um, and when you say the tour, just uh, you're talking the, the tour, tour de France. France when yeah. you say that, so when you say the tour, you are. I mean, that is the, the Tour de yeah. France, and probably and the race that most Americans, if not all, no. are, are, yeah. are most aware of, know what gets uh, national publicity and media coverage here in the U.S. is the Tour de France. Yeah, so. I mean, it's okay. the biggest race in the world
1: yep. by an order of magnitude compared to any mm-hmm. other race. So that's why yep. everyone would say that's the biggest deal. I always yep. just felt stressed out and was kind of hating life the whole time it was happening every year I did it. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, like the Giro and the, the Giro, which is the tour of Italy, the Giro d'Italia yeah. or the Vuelta yep. España, the tour of Spain, Okay, those are way more relaxed from the writer's standpoint. Um, and okay. you can actually enjoy them a lot more. Um, so the wins I got there meant a lot more to me. Um, is that right? actually, and, or I enjoyed them a lot more than uh than it, in the tour.
0: And you won you won what? You won three stages at the Giro, is that right? And uh, two at the I think it's Vuelta. Three at the Vuelta, three, two at the Giro. Two at the, two at the yeah, Giro. I always, always really the loved the Vuelta.
1: Vuelta. It was uh it was just I don't know why I always had a lot of fun there. Um mm-hmm. and it was just a different a different vibe than the other races. And then like yeah. I say, I also love those one day races. Uh, I won a few yeah. of those that were kind of special to me as well. Mm-hmm. Um it's just that those are a different beast. It's, it's all or nothing yep. on one day. There's no kind of second chances. The way you go to a grand tour, even as a sprinter, like not every day will suit you, but you'll probably have six or seven opportunities over the course of the race. Mm-hmm. So if it okay. goes wrong one day, well, okay, maybe three days from now, I've got another shot. Let's see what happens. Whereas there's one day races, yeah. it's, it either happens or it doesn't. And I kind of like it. that. Um, so yeah, I, there were a
0: couple of races that I did real well in there that, that I would put up. As special sure. memories. Yeah. Now, also doing some research on you, I read that you lost a really good buddy of yours at the Giro. Yeah. Uh, De Italia in 2011, who uh, actually died in, an, in a cycling accident during the race. How did that impact you, both mentally and with regards to how you approached your cycling career from that point forward?
1: Uh, that was a pretty big deal for me. Um, so, uh, Wouter Weyland is the guy that died. Um, he and I were the same age. We'd raced against each other as juniors. He was a Belgian guy from Ghent. Um, so when okay. I moved to Ghent in 2007, we already knew each other. We were friends mm-hmm. just really casually. Uh, and then we really hit it off and we started training together every day. And, uh, my wife and I were living over there full time, even through the off seasons at that point in time. So, we were hanging out together in the off season, just being yeah. dumb kids. And, and we got to be really good buddies. Um, you know, we, we raced, we were very similar styles of riders So we always did the same races together. So half the time we okay. were traveling to the races together. Um, we, we got pretty close and yeah, he had kind of that nightmare scenario, horrible crash that, that killed him. Um, I mean, it's one of those freak accident things. It, it happens in the sport, but it, it doesn't happen that often. Uh,
0: yeah, sometimes it's amazing it doesn't happen more often. Yeah, no doubt. Um, Seriously, the speeds that you guys are reaching and the terrain that you're on. Yeah, you're
1: but yeah, I was I was I feel like that was a moment when I I grew up a lot again. Where it was kind of it all seemed like fun and games to me in the sport. Like, yeah, crashes happen, but whatever. You lose a little bit of skin, maybe you break a collarbone. You're back in a few weeks. Like, no big deal. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, oh, this is this is real, you know, kind of a a sense of the consequences, uh, Mm -hmm. arrived, uh, after that. And I think it changed me as a person. I mean, also just, I had never dealt with loss like that before. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd been lucky enough that I hadn't had to figure out how you cope with losing a best friend or, you know, the the family members I had lost had been older grandparents who it wasn't a shock. It was kind of the natural course of life, which is still sad, but, you're a little more mentally prepared for that. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I have to say I didn't handle it well. Um, I, I repressed a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of, you know, it, it was weird because at first it was like, I went through a little phase, like, Oh, this was really hard. And then i just had this obsessive goal to win a stage at the tour de France and dedicate it to him, which yeah. like sounds healthy. Uh, maybe, when I say mm-hmm. it, it was actually really yeah. unhealthy um, because it basically became a way for me to not process what had happened. Yeah. Um, and I actually pulled it off
0: that year. I You did. That was the year you won your stage at the tour. Yeah. Right? And, was in you know,
1: I I totally thought that would be cathartic. Um, and in the end it was almost the opposite. It was kind of like, huh. I realized I just, I just never, it took me a long time to kind of deal with that and like come to terms with it. And I was, you know, a little irresponsible in my behavior, uh, not, not taking care of myself as a, as an athlete or just as a person. Um, kind of, yeah, it, it made me like the sport a little less when it happened. Uh, I didn't quit loving it, but it made me, it gave me a different perspective kind of jaded me a little. And,
0: uh, I just went off the rails for a little while after, after that lost focus. Was there anything particular that brought you back or was it, simply a matter of time and, and growing up, or was there a moment that made you kind of check yourself and, and get back on track?
1: Honestly, it was, I was kind of just blowing in the wind for about two years after that, where, I mean, not like I was a complete mess. Yeah. I was still racing bikes. I was still having success, but I was, I might like, I wasn't, again, I was behaving a bit irresponsibly in my personal life a little bit, just, yeah you know, kind of maybe partying a little too much and, and all that. And actually in 2013, um, I had, <laughs> I had a little trouble getting a okay. contract the next year. Um, which is interesting cause I was mm-hmm. still having pretty good results, but that was the year, um, Lance Armstrong had his big confession on Oprah and that was like a bomb yeah. in the sport of cycling. Five yeah. teams folded at the end of that season the sponsors didn't want anything to do with the sport. So all of a sudden there were, there was a huge number of guys on the market and I was kind of having success, but not quite at the level I had been a couple years earlier. And I, I had to scrape out a contract to keep racing. And it was a bit of a wake up call. It was kind of like, Oh, this team that I've been on for all these years is kind of done yeah. dealing with my BS. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of being a pain in their, in pain in their ass basically. And, uh, yeah, that helped me wake up a lot. Um, you know, and it it also was like, okay, maybe it's time to start reimagining myself as a writer. You know, maybe I don't have the head for being a sprinter anymore. I, I was scared in the sprints. Um, they're pretty hectic. Uh there's a lot of mm-hmm. like physical contact in the sprints, uh which I used to be really good at and then all of a sudden I was scared yeah. and I wasn't as good at, so I wasn't
0: winning as much anymore. You kind of lost and, the edge a bit. I mean, which I imagine you have to have, like you said, yeah. you're making contact, bumping.
1: Yeah, and yeah. so it kind of, I scraped out a contract that year, and uh, and just started thinking how I could, how I could change my trajectory as a writer. Uh, I think I kind of finally emotionally dealt with that baggage a little bit. I mean, mm-hmm. it never go Those that, those kind of things never completely go away, but you learn mm-hmm. how to compartmentalize them a little bit and and deal with it, and then. Um, yeah, raced that 2014 season, had a good year and actually was able to find an opportunity on this up and coming team. Uh, it was a South African team who had been around on a low level and wanted to make a jump to the, to the top level. Um, the world tour was what it was called at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, and they were looking for a road captain and that was my chance to make that transition. I was like, look, I'm not, I don't have the head to be a sprinter anymore. I'm also getting older. I'm not sure I even have the legs to be a sprinter anymore. And I still love the sport. I still wanted to keep racing bikes. And uh, yeah, that was a great opportunity to mm-hmm. to reinvent myself. And that, yeah. that really helped me process things and get back on track a little yeah. bit too, I think.
0: You talk about not having the legs for it anymore and, and really the head for it anymore. It's interesting. I've been loosely following this year's tour and I saw Mark Cavendish, who's <laughs> also a fellow sprinter. He won a stage the other day and then a buddy of mine right before you and he I started again this interview. just Exactly. Yeah. I've got a friend who's a, a really big cyclist. He just texted me, like I said, right before we started. He's like, Cav just won again. You're 37, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. And this Mark Cavendish is 36. You're younger than me. We yeah, r- raced against him my whole career. I, I can imagine, right? And you guys are both sprint specialists. And so I can imagine you've had a lot of uh, duels with him. Yeah, just tell me. And, and again, he's now, I believe, probably after winning today, just too, too shy of the record of most stages ever won at yeah, the tour de and france
1: he i was a good writer he was a champion he's the greatest sprinter of all time in the sport of cycling yeah
0: how impressive is this because what i i also he hadn't won a stage at the tour in five years i think he'd been out of the sport or at least from uh competing at the tour de france for three years yeah how impressive is that what he's doing right now at age 36 it's amazing his his psychology is is pretty incredible i uh
1: you know, for the years where I was at my peak, he and I were going head to head a lot. I mean, he's better than me. He was better than me then too. But I could, you know, if he was on an off day and I was on a good day, I could beat yeah. him. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, like mentally, I only was able to keep that kind of an edge for about four years, and then just the stress and pressure and and you know all that other life stuff kind of built up on me, and I I lost that edge. He's had it for thirteen years now or something, and he's, right his level of self-belief is incredible and it only takes a little bit for to start building it. And sprinting is a a real confidence game because it's that battle for position and, you know, believing that you're better than everyone else and that you deserve to be there. And basically, you know, being, being that guy to, to headbutt and throw elbows and battle for position. And he's just got a mental edge on people that when it comes to just truly believing he's the best in the world and, he is so, <laughs> at least in that specific aspect. Of Absolutely, the and uh, yeah, it's funny. Uh, he and I didn't always get along when we were younger because we were competitors, and uh, we were both kind of brash, cocky twenty-somethings. Um, yeah. We butted heads a lot. But the last two years of my career, we were on the same team. Okay, I didn't realize you guys were teammates. Yeah, it was a, it was an interesting coming full circle thing. Sure. And before before that first season, it was like, oh, this could get real awkward real quick. Yeah. Um, but we actually got along amazingly well. Probably the reason we butted heads so much when we were younger is how much we had in common. How were. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, being a little older, a little more grown up that, uh, that changed and he's a, he's a great guy, but it was interesting to those two years to, to see him inside the team as opposed to a competitor mm-hmm. on a different team and, yep. and seeing just how mentally strong he is. I mean, that's why obviously he has the physical ability. You can't do it without that, but it's his, it's his mentality is why he's the greatest of all time.
0: He... I've always been fascinated by that. People that dominate these sports, especially individual sports. You take a, a Roger Federer at his uh, peak or a Tiger Woods when he was at his peak. When you have these people that are competing against the very best in the world, and then yet they dominate those people that are the very best. And there's always, there's got to be some mental something that they have that is not... Normal. You know, I've been on teams with a couple of those kind of
1: champions. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I was teammates with him, I was teammates with Bradley Wiggins, who's won the Tour de France, yep. Yep. um, a few other guys, Ryder Hesjedal, who won the the Giro d'Italia. Um and it's a it winning is almost a compulsion. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting, like for me, if I went to a grand tour and I won a stage in the first week, it was kind of like Phew. Did yeah, it, job did. done. You're you know, exact, I can just exactly. kind of enjoy myself for the rest yeah. of the days. Pressure's off. Yeah. And watching a guy like Cavendish, it was almost like with each win the pressure built more yeah. that he needed another one mm-hmm. and another one. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost addictive. And like I say, those guys have a an inner drive that I mean, I'm not trying to pretend like I didn't have an inner drive to do what I did in the sport, but I feel like I don't even didn't even scratch the
0: surface compared to what those true champions, what they have. Yeah. Do you keep in touch with any of them? Like a guy like Cavendish, I mean, will you text him a congratulatory text or anything like that? Do you have contact with uh, guys that you used to race with?
1: Uh, some more than others. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I still like send Cav a, a message and say, good job. Or, you know, yeah. we might text once or twice a year kind of a thing. Um, I, have, I have other guys who I talk to still every week. Sure. Um, you know, just the guys you really became close with over your time in the sport. Mm -hmm. so yeah i've been out of the sport long enough now um i wouldn't say there's that many guys still racing that i'm in touch with also i'm getting older more and more of my generation is retired at this point yeah (laughs) that's uh, why it's
0: amazing to see what he's
1: still doing yeah at at that age he's a unique individual um what Uh he's accomplished i don't know many people you could really even compare it to in the sport yeah yeah any regrets
0: from your racing career
1: Not really. Um, I mean, hindsight's 2020, you know, and I could really nerd out and start regretting tactical decisions in some (laughs) random race in (laughs) 2010. That's, that's, I think, no, I mean, my only real regret I would say, I don't know if I can even really call it a regret is just sometimes I look back at decisions I made or like things I said when I was in the press, when I was Mm -hmm.
0: 26, 27 years old and just super cocky and I cringe, you know? Did you have a reputation? Were you like Tyler Farah, the brash cocky American? Were you like the poster child of <laughs> I don't know if I was that bad, but I definitely yeah. had my moments.
1: Um, okay. <laughs> you know, I was I I could be a little hot headed at times mm-hmm. in the races. And yeah. It's growing up, you know, so like, I don't know if it's a regret because you just have to go through that growing up. And especially you turn pro really young, you're in that world, you're having success. It's really easy to be cocky and, uh, you know, it, it it takes a little time to, well, dose of reality sometimes. (laughs) And, but yeah, other than that, no, I, I view it as a great adventure. You know, I, I look at a guy like Cav, I'm like, wow, I don't know how you're still even in the sport, still living that lifestyle, Mm -hmm. uh, let alone, winning at the highest level. Um, Because it it wore me down
0: after a while, uh, just to Mm -hmm. travel and living out of a suitcase. It is such a different growth, uh, or such a different trajectory than what most people go through. And when I say most, I'm I'm thinking of a lot of people here in in the US. And if your traditional path after high school is either going and getting a job or going off to, to college and still living a little bit in this uh, bubble where you, you, you have some safety nets, whereas you're over there being forced to grow up right away. And as you said, uh, being a professional athlete and living in a different country and speaking a different language and having the pressure of succeeding to keep your contract. So I can imagine that forces you to, to grow up in a different way than probably what most of us could relate to.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a weird paradox. It really makes you grow up fast in some ways. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, being a professional athlete allows you to be an eternal child, yeah, um, yeah, because you have a whole crew of support staff on the team who just are babysitting you, and even through life outside, if you're not doing well, just being a grown up and taking care of things, the team will step in and make sure that your residency yeah. paperwork is in order, and you Got have it. internet in your apartment, sure, and sure. <laughs> like your yeah. bank account is set up. Like they will yeah. do all that for you. So it's. It's weird, yeah. Like, like, I say you really grow up a lot in some ways, and then in other ways, it's like you can come to the end of your career and you'd be like, "Wow, I'm in my mid thirties, and I've never had to be an actual adult." <laughs> right,
0: right, right. No, <laughs> you know, like, what's that. your job every day? That.
1: You sleep in because sleep is so crucial. You know, you sleep till nine, and then all right, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go for a five hour bike ride. And then I'm going to play Xbox all afternoon to to rest. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You know, so it's, (laughs) it's an interesting life for sure. Um, Uh, you can imagine what I say. What I always say is if you gave 19 year old me the chance to do it all over again, relive my career Mm -hmm. exactly as it was, I would, I would take it in a heartbeat. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give that up for anything. Um, but I'm also really happy to be what I'm, where I'm at now in life and, and be in a different chapter. Um, you know, it was a great adventure. I'm really thankful that I got to experience it. Not many people do.
0: Um, but I also was very, very ready to be done when I retired. Well, we'll talk about that here in just a moment. I do want to go back to a comment you made earlier when you said about how it was difficult landing that contract back in, I think it was like 2014. And it was right after Lance Armstrong had uh, done his confessional with Oprah doping has obviously plagued the sport of cycling over the years. Is it, or was it when you were competing, was it possible to be both clean and competitive winning races at the highest level?
1: Yeah. Um, When I first bumped up to the pro tour level, Mm -hmm. um, I think that was, it was hard to be doing that at that time, but Mm -hmm. there were two or three massive scandals in a row Uh, the first three years I was at that level, um, just big doping rings getting busted basically. And that, that drastically changed the sport. Um, and the sport cleaned up a whole lot, uh, in 2008, basically that was, that was a turning point in the sport, um, where they went from the way they had been doing things with doping controls to, they became very, very strict. They created this thing called a biological passport, um, so you were getting tested all the time at home. Yeah. Um, you know, it used to be, you, you, still had to give whereabouts and they could come drug test you at any time, 365 mm-hmm. days a year. Okay. But it was, you get tested just a urine test, uh, for substances like once here and there. And after that, it was like, you were getting tested every couple weeks. They were doing blood and urine and they created these hormone profiles for every athlete So that instead of actually having to test positive for a substance, they could also catch people if their hormones were just doing unnatural things. Um, Because a lot of times that urine test can only catch guys in a certain window and then it's out of their system, but the effects carry on. Um, And when they started doing all that, the sport cleaned up a lot, which was lucky for me because uh, my first two years at that level, I was having success in small races Uh, Mm -hmm. and just getting my head kicked in in big races. And it was kind of well, am I good enough to be at this level? Maybe I actually need to go back and just do a career on the American circuit. I briefly considered that, or it was like, you know, maybe, or you're like, do I have to start having that dark question of, do Mm -hmm. I go down that that doping path? Um, So personally, it was fortuitous timing with those scandals because the sport basically cleaned up before I had to make that like, okay, do I do this or not decision?
0: Would you say the sport is uh, to your knowledge, then pretty clean right now? I mean, do you think the sports in a, in a much better place now than it was during those Lance Armstrong years? Oh, big time. Um, now that being said, there's human nature.
1: Someone's always going to cheat. I mean, no matter how strict you make the penalties, Mm -hmm. no matter what the consequences are, Mm -hmm. someone will take that risk. in any Um, yeah, in any sport, and I mean in life, people. Yeah.
0: Yes. Exactly. You
1: go to jail for a long time for robbing a bank, but people still exactly. try to rob banks. That's like. right. That's <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think the sport is uh, is very clean, or as clean as it can be at this point. You know, like I say, you're always going to have that element where it doesn't matter what they do, they're going to take the risk, and you just have to hope they get caught sooner rather than later. Um, but yeah, I think on the whole. Cycling is an interesting sport. It has a bad reputation, but it's it's a little bit of a self-inflicted wound um, because cycling is so strongly anti-doping. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the big scandals was Operation Puerto. Uh, that was one of those ones. It was in 2000. I don't know if that one was 2007, I think. One of the ones that really blew the lid off things. Yeah. Um, and it was this, it happened in Madrid. It was a doping doctor who was, doping a whole lot of different sports like hundreds of athletes from he had blood bags and files on like top athletes in the world and very very big sports you only ever heard the names of cyclists because the other sports all yeah clamped down didn't didn't release that stuff and it just went away whereas cycling it was you know all the names came out they were like It became the greater media's fall guy, but it was because cycling actually goes after people who cheat Mm -hmm. in ways
0: that a lot of those sports just cover up. Just kind Um, of turn a blind eye to it. Yeah. I know you're really into mountain biking. Now, are you still a big advocate of uh, cycling? And I guess when I'm saying cycling, I'm talking road racing. Uh, I, I feel like somebody told me once when you got hired that you don't even own a road bike anymore. I don't. Is that your, yeah. <laughs> you just true? Yeah. That's true. Are you still a big fan of the sport though? Like as far yeah, as I still look at the it? results, yeah. I, I yeah. still pay
1: attention, um, to the races. I like, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm just a fan now. Yeah. Um, that being said, I, I raced a bike for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, 15 of those were professional. It riding on the road. Just feels like being at work to me. Even now, yeah. even like four years post-retirement, if I go out on a road ride, it kind of feels like, oh, this is just mm-hmm. slogging away like I used to. Um, so it I don't take a ton of pleasure in road riding anymore. I mean, if if yeah. I had buddies who were going to do it, I'd be like, oh yeah, I'll kind of borrow one of your bikes, I'll go ride with you. Sure. But but no, like doing the mountain bike thing. I mean, I love riding a bike. I've ridden a bike my yeah. whole life. My mom says I was obsessed with it when I was four <laughs> years old. You know, it's just that's what it's always been for me. Um, and that mountain bike was a way to keep riding a bike, but it's different. It's, it's totally different than what I was doing when I was training. And now it's just me and my buddies going and having fun, yeah. you know, like, okay, you get a workout cause you have to ride to the top of the hill, but we're just riding to the top of the hill so that we can bomb the descent and, and, you know, hoot and holler and laugh at each other. Like, so it's, it's just fun for me now. I don't, I don't view it as getting a workout or training or anything. It's just mm-hmm. a, you know. It, it's like, going, it's like going skiing, right? You get a great workout yeah. over the day of skiing, but you didn't go skiing because you wanted a workout. You went skiing because it's really fun to ski.
0: <laughs> Same thing Absolutely. with mountain and, and you're, Exactly. And as a byproduct of that, you're getting a great workout. From what I know of you and talking to you from time to time, I know we're on different shifts, but when we cross paths, yeah, I know you mountain bike, as we just said a lot. And I know you just uh, told me the other day that you were go to hood or was it, I can't remember Adams. No, uh, Adams. Adams. Yeah. 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 When you went to Adams and, and, uh, hiked up with skis, um, with skins and skied down. So I know you're a big endurance athlete in general, and obviously being a professional cyclist, you are accustomed to living in that pain cave. I'd like you to talk to me a little bit about the value of doing hard things and how you, um, mentally are able to get to a place, uh, where you can overcome, some of that physical pain.
1: You know, it's, it's a funny one. And I don't know if it's because I've done it my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my dad was an endurance athlete too. Like he and I were doing like 30 K Nordic ski, you know, like races. Yeah. Uh, when I was nine years old. Um, so I've just been doing this stuff the whole time. it's compulsive for me. If yeah. I'm honest, like, like my wife, I get so annoying if I don't go do something <laughs> physically hard, almost every day to the point where like sometimes like mid afternoon, my wife will just be like, go yeah, like you need to yep. go do something. I don't care what you do. Go for a run. Like go just do do something to make yourself tired because otherwise you're just going to drive me crazy. Um And so, yeah, like for me, I just, I love doing hard things. I love pushing myself physically. I think you get a real kind of mental clarity w- mm-hmm. when you get into that zone. Yeah. Um, that, personally, I find hard to achieve other ways. Um, you know, that that feeling when you're just in tune with your body and kind of feels like you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And it's hard, but it fe- it, it doesn't hurt. It feels good to be going hard. That's, that's yeah. kind of the way it feels to me. Um, I also just kind of have a fascination uh, with putting yourself in a situation where it's just like, well, this just is what it is. We have to get from point A to point B and there's not an option to tap out basically. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, my hobby all through my racing career was hunting and, uh, mountaineering like alpine climbing. And so my Mm -hmm. off seasons, instead of a lot of my fellow bike racers would kind of just hang out in the off season and maybe mount bike a little bit and, you know, party and relax. A lot of times I would finish the season and then my brother and I would go do these just ridiculous alpine climbs where it's like, you, I was always seeking to put myself in a position where you're just like, wow, I'm really tired and this is really hard, but I can't quit. I'm, you know, you're, you're in it, right. There's no other option but to to just finish it. And, and I love that. You know, like that was also, you know, like, you know, hunting you, we do these big high altitude mountain hunts and you get an animal down eight miles from the car and you're like, well, we got to pack this thing out there you're not you can't there's no other option except you just do what has to be done and it's really hard but i just find that so satisfying you know that i i enjoy it while it's happening even the suck just kind of embracing the suck and like oh this is so hard oh this is miserable and especially if you're doing it with someone else Mm -hmm. who you can kind of laugh yeah. about it as it's happening yes, with. Yeah. Uh, so, you know,
0: is also a suffering just as you are, but going through that and having that shared experience, yeah.
1: my, my younger brother and I, we've been doing that together our whole lives between yeah. hunting and climbing and, mm-hmm. and the bond that that builds with people. It's also the bond you build with your teammates as a pro cyclist. You're, you know, that shared suffering really yes. ties people together in a way that people who haven't experienced that, I think it's hard to explain it to yeah. them. You know, you go through those things and you're like, it. you yes. shared that and you got through it together and you helped each other get through it. And I mean, I'm sure you can build those bonds
0: other ways, too. But for me, doing something really hard is the way to, <laughs> the way to do that. And uh, look, I, I, I agree with you and I know exactly what you're saying. And I've talked about this on some of my other podcasts, but there is something about having shared experiences in hard circumstances that really bring people together and really forge those bonds. And yeah, I've done my share of mountaineering as well. And uh, the guys that I have done some of this mountain climbing with, yeah, they're some of the some of my tightest relationships that I have to this day. Or or guys that you just do difficult workouts with, and, and a little bit, you know, even in the yeah. even in the fire service, uh, um, going on on these really intense calls at times. And I'm sure I don't come from a military background, but I know people in the military uh, have a lot of these sh- uh, bonds from these really Really unique, intense, shared experiences. So uh, that all makes complete sense. Everything that you're saying, it's really resonating uh, with me for sure. Yeah.
1: I, I, I believe that that's why like out in the station, I'm, I'm a big believer in crew workouts. Um, yeah. just for that reason, and Grant, you know, you're, you're shrinking it down to a smaller scale, but still yeah, it, 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 yeah. it, it brings you together in a way that in a different way. And, yep. and yeah, uh, I'm still a floater in the department. So I, I, work with a lot of crews a little bit, um, you know, hopefully someday I'll get a home and can actually work with one crew a lot and start building those longer term, uh, relationships. But yeah, I, I, you know, big calls are the same thing. You know, you, yeah. you shared that experience on that call or, or whatever. And, and even and like, it's not always no. nice. The experience itself isn't no. always nice. Sometimes it's a pretty crummy experience. Yep. But you shared it and you know that that ties you together in a
0: different way too. Sometimes the crummier the experience, the more it brings you together yeah. especially down the road. The, the more you almost look back at it later on with this weird nostalgia of just like you know yeah, it was just like how, how, how shitty it was or, or, or how crazy it was. you know it's almost like the more out there it is, the more you do form that bond.
1: I had a climbing buddy that called it type 2
0: Fun. Okay. Where it's not
1: fun while it's happening, but it's really fun when you talk about it
0: later. That was yeah, his exactly that's. I'm going to start using that type two fun. All right. I like that. I like that. It is so true. Yeah. Somehow you you almost change the narrative a little bit later on when you're retelling it. You forget yeah. about <laughs> Big time. how much it sucked in the moment. Yeah. Um, so you brought up firefighting a little bit there, uh, and we've been talking mostly about your cycling career, but. Yeah, let's shift gears here a little bit. How did you decide upon pursuing firefighting uh, as a career after retiring from cycling?
1: It's something that had been in my head since I was a kid, mm-hmm. really. Um, like When I was in high school, I, I was pretty driven to become a pro cyclist. But it, yeah. I still had a in my head, well, what if I'm not good enough? Like, What yeah. am I going to do with my life if I can't be a pro bike racer? Right. And it was kind of like, well, fire service seems pretty interesting to me. Um, I had a friend who I was in high school with who went right into the firefighting route. Um, he's an officer down at the, in Hanford now. Um, okay. you know, he's been, he's been a firefighter for 17 years now or something yeah. like, yeah. you know, and we, we, ro- we rode bikes together in high school, but he was just on a path, you know, he was going to be a firefighter Yeah, and, uh, you know, like, so talking to him, like him moving in that direction, put it in my head. And then, you know, I went down the cycling path and I got to live that experience, but you retire really young when you're from cycling. And I was 33 mm-hmm. years old when I retired from cycling and you know, like you can't just do nothing for the next. we yeah, actually
0: so got some working years left in. you? Big time.
1: And I'm also yeah. a person like I need a purpose. I, yeah. I thought, you know, like when I come to retire, I already knew, I knew without a question in my mind, uh, two years before I retired that I was going to be a firefighter. Okay. When I retired, there was no doubt about it at that point. Um, but even still when I kind of did my last race and it was like, all right, well I've got like a few months here to kind of screw around. Um, you know, my paychecks come till the end of December and it's only Mm -hmm. September. And Mm -hmm. after about two or three months, it was like, I need a purpose. I, I need, I need something beyond just recreating every day. Um, but yeah, I, I, one thing, cycling was an awesome experience and it was a, a great adventure, kind of a dream come true. But there were parts of it that were really unfulfilling to me. Um, it felt like a very being a professional athlete is a very selfish uh, existence in a lot of yeah. ways. Like your whole day is built around yourself and maximizing your training and your nutrition yeah. and your sleep and your performance. And you sacrifice a lot of things and you don't I I just felt like I was never giving anything back um, other than, I mean, maybe entertainment for Mm -hmm. fans, but, but I felt very unsatisfied over the course of my career Mm. in that sense that I wasn't contributing to society in any way or doing anything productive. And, you know, towards the end of my career, when I, in my more jaded moments is like, what do I do every day? I literally Mm. just convert food to energy that (laughs) I then burn. That's my (laughs) whole reason for being, you know, (laughs) you get to the end of a week you're like, what did I do this week? Well, I trained 35 hours. That's it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, so I wanted something post cycling that I felt like I was making a contribution. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to be like corny about it, but, but I did want to like serve my community in some way. And, uh, you know, there, there's lots of ways you can do it and, one way is perfect for one person and terrible for another and everyone finds their ways. But I felt like the fire service was going to be a good fit for me. And now that I'm here doing it, uh, I think it's an even better fit for me than I even thought it would be. It's, you know, I kind of feel like I've been really lucky. I went from like one dream job to another dream job. Basically it was like a dream come true. And now I'm a firefighter. I'm like, well God, I think I'm actually better suited to this job than I was to be in a bike racer.
0: <laughs> well, you're so. doing it. You're 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 damn good at it. So um, yeah, we're we're lucky to have you as a, oh, as a department. Try. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing corny about it. I, I, everyone has different reasons and draws to becoming a firefighter, but I, I think everybody you have to have some pull of service, of public service to your community. Yeah. To, to want to pursue that career. Like I said, whatever, whatever, whatever the main driving force is, I think that has to be a part of it. And I think just about everybody that we work with does, does have that draw. So yeah, nothing corny about that. That's the cool thing I've found if one, now that I'm
1: in the fire service is like you say, everyone got into this because they feel that like yeah. there's a, like that's a pretty unique thing where you can like, Oh, everyone I work with is here. Cause they're like, a good person who wants to help mm. people. Like, yeah. that's, exactly <laughs> that's awesome. Right. You know, yeah, like you, like what do we have? 105 guys in our department something on the line, like something like that. Like you're not going to be best friends with everybody. Like different people, different people have different personalities. Like some people get along better than others, but when you can know at the end of the day, that whether you click with someone or not, mm-hmm. you're still doing this for the right reasons. You yes. may be just do it slightly differently. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's awesome. I think it's it's
0: special yeah. that you can have that. At the end of the day, I think there's a mutual respect for everybody, yeah. is what it comes down to. Like I said, you're not going to necessarily click and be best buddies and go grab beers when you're off shift with every single person. But there is an understanding and mutual respect. I always equate it to the, you know, it's like you can make fun of your younger brother, but... Nobody else can, you know. Like, yeah, if like, somebody else makes fun. You know, then you're going to stand up for him. It's kind of the same. It's like, yeah, can have fun with this person that, but if someone else from somewhere else talks smack about them, then you're going to stand up for him. Yeah, totally that <laughs> yeah, that's totally awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm curious. Are there any parallels or similarities that you have recognized between being a professional athlete and a professional firefighter?
1: Yeah, uh, I think there's actually a lot. Um, all my friends who. Uh, are in neither of those fields mm-hmm. laugh because they're like, well, you just found a way to get people to pay you to work out. For yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> but, well played, sir. Well, yeah, played. Like, yeah, have you ever worked a real job? Like, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, 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 again, it's corny. It's one of those things that like when you're, when you're working your dream job, it doesn't feel like a real job, mm-hmm. you know? Um, mm-hmm. But no, I think just the the team aspect of things. I've I've now spent my entire adult life in teams, whether it yeah. was a bike racing team or whether it was a crew. And I I feel like I thrive in that. I'm I love that setting. I love that camaraderie. I love that just like constant verbal abuse of each other. Like yeah. that yeah. that's that's the only thing I know as an adult at this point. I mean, even younger, really, because I was in—I was on teams by the my whole teenage years too in cycling. So, you know, I kind of just feel like that's where I fit. I'm like, you know, not trying to jam a square peg into a round hole in a different environment. Like, it's very comfortable and easy to me. Um, It's funny, like when I was in the hiring process, you know, and they ask you, like, oh, you're gonna have to spend 48 hours straight together. You know, (laughs) are you gonna be able to do that? And it's like, well, the Tour de France, we lived nine guys on a team bus yeah. for four weeks straight basically right. Right. Like, yeah, by the this. time you do the the stuff <laughs> leading up to the tour yeah, exactly. and the rest days is like mm-hmm. so 48 hours doesn't seem very hard Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know but yeah i like i like that team environment um you know that goes hand in hand a lot i'm a big believer in training obviously uh from my cycling background and i like you know, I, I'm, I'm almost like a fire nerd and that like, you know, I just love the training. I love the more we train, the happier I am. And, and I really like, you know, being proficient in things and getting reps and getting better at things. And, and I like that about the fire service, right? It's, it's a weird job. It's not as a controlled environment, like, you know, cycling, you're able to really narrow in and, and obsessively tweak things. Fire service, you know, it's always messy when we're on an actual call, it's the real world and you're adapting to the conditions. Yeah. It never um, goes quite as smooth as training does. But you know, what do you do? Well, you train and you train in d- different, you know, you keep tweaking the training so that it becomes muscle memory so that mm-hmm. you can make those adaptations on the fly in the real world. Um, yep. that was a little bit of a, a shift for me to get used to of like, Oh, you know, it never happens. Like you train, yep. you know, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, drill ground and actual calls don't play out the same, but But I just love that kind of building, you know, training to be ready. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, because one of the things I love when I was racing bikes is like, you you have this big overarching goal of, okay, this race, this is my big target. And you spend months building up to that and, and, you know, refining your training and preparing Um, fire service is a little different. because you don't have that. It's not like, okay, this shift on this date is the big one, but, but it's that like, you're always preparing you're always training, you're always growing as a firefighter. And there's so much to learn in this, yeah. in this field that you'd be a firefighter for 35 years and you still have a ton to learn. And exactly. there's different avenues you can take based on your interests. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's some aspects of the fire service that I don't think are a fit for me. Whereas there's other ones that I'm just super fired up about and yeah. just want to keep getting better at and and learning more and more so. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think that just that kind of aspect of becoming physically proficient at things, and mm-hmm. and then just that that team that team atmosphere,
0: right? That's huge right. for me. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, yeah, it is a little different in so much as with cycling, yeah, you're you're probably you're trying to peak for a certain uh, race at this date, uh, whereas you don't know when that's coming in the fire service. But the reality is, it it, it does come; those big calls do come, and yeah. and that is part of the. Uh, part of the excitement and, like you said about training is none no two calls are ever the same which is which is also exciting and being able to utilize those skills and to think outside the box a little bit depending on what those calls are and when they come
1: yeah yeah it's it's just fun it's satisfying and I mean sometimes you get those calls like they're crummy calls and that like something pretty bad's happened to a person mm-hmm. and it's not that you it's not that you want bad things to happen to people, but it's like that's an opportunity to use the skills that you've been taught to try to make that person's situation better. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, but, but, you know, I think that's a good, like that helps me kind of cope with those, those situations too. Cause it's like, well, you know, this is what I trained for. And you know, you can compartmentalize a little bit. Like if this, then that, okay, this is happening. So now I do this, now I do that.
0: We have an interesting job where when things are really slow and mundane, that's kind of the best possible outcome for the city and its citizens. The citizens. You have this crazy call. It usually, it usually means somebody's uh, life or house or property is in peril, but it gives us the opportunity then to put those skills and all of our training into use. So it is a, it is a weird kind of, it's a uh, weird dynamic, uh, the word paradox. Yeah. It's a weird dynamic. The just how that goes. It's like, uh, we you want that opportunity, but then you also recognize, well, if things are slow, that's that 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 that's a good thing. It's a thing, good thing, thing for everybody.
1: Yeah. 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 But it is a it's a chance to help again, right? You exactly. You're exactly. having a bad
0: day and you're at least trying yep. to make it better. Final few questions here. These are gonna be our parting shots. First thing that pops into your mind. Go ahead and oh, answer boy. it. A, a non living thing you cannot live without. A non living thing that I cannot
1: live without coffee. Coffee. Yeah, uh, which is, I, yeah. I'm not even going to try <laughs>
0: to sugarcoat it. I'm a, I'm an addict. Like, true addiction. And probably even worse now that you become a firefighter. I don't know about you, but my, my coffee consumption yeah. when I'm at the firehouse is is off the charts. Like yeah, at home, it was I keep bad, it bad check, before, but, yeah. and it's <laughs> horrible now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you are happiest when? Uh, just hanging
1: out and watching my son grow up. Uh, it's funny. It's not super dramatic or, or anything, but... Uh, since becoming a dad, I never realized how much pleasure I would take in even the small things of watching this, this tiny little creature develop into like a functional human. And, uh, it's fun. Like, w- like like him figuring out how to ride a bike, learn how to ski, just, mm-hmm. just become a real person. And the, the ridiculous conversations you have with a child <laughs> sometimes are, uh, are, are really special, uh, in a way that I could say I never would have realized, uh, until, until it happened to me.
0: Yeah, it's hard to really uh, put into words or to quantify what it's like being a parent until you are one, right? You you hear people talk about it that are parents before you become one. But yeah, it's until you actually have a little one of your own that you can kind of recognize what other parents say when they talk about moments like that. Oh, big time. I completely
1: discounted it. Yeah. Uh, when I was younger, when people would say yeah. that, and like, oh, it changes everything. Like, eh, I kind of doubt that. Right. And then you're like, wow, I never knew I would be this excited about, like, the most mundane things sometimes. Yeah.
0: Well, I wonder if you'll have a, a future cyclist on your hands, because I remember you telling me once that you actually built a little BMX track in your backyard for your son, right? How, how old is he?
1: Uh he's three and a half now. Okay. Uh yeah, he's he's been a maniac on the strider bike since he was uh like eighteen months old, more or less. So we uh we make regular trips to the the real pump tracks mm-hmm. around in the area. And then I, I built him his own mini one in our backyard uh that hopefully can kind of grow with him as he gets better and better at it. But yeah, we're we're transitioning to the pedal bike now. Nice. Uh, but yeah, he's a little, little pump track machine on a strider
0: right now. That's awesome, man. Following in his father's footsteps. Oh, we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) You have to do something you are scared to do. What is your process of quieting that fear and proceeding anyways? If it's something that has to get done, it's
1: scary. And you just have to like, yeah, it is what it is. This has to happen. So it might be unpleasant. It might suck. It might hurt. It might whatever, but it has to happen. So let's just do it. It's kind of that like, you know, like when you're a kid and you're jumping off a bridge into the river, you know, yeah. like, Oh, this is 25 feet tall. This is pretty scary. Yeah. You know, yeah. like the longer you stand there, the scary it gets. Like I was always kind of took the route of like, well, I decided I'm going to do this. So I'm just going to run and jump right away. Cause, right. Right. uh, so yeah, just, just accepting that it, it's, it's a thing that needs to be, get done and mm-hmm. you don't procrastinate just like, well, it's going to suck now or it's going to suck 10 minutes from now or tomorrow. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do it right now, so that it's over.
0: What does being brave mean to Tyler Farah? Oh, <laughs> that's a tougher one. Yeah, buddy. Uh,
1: I think it's just, um, you know, pushing through your own weaknesses, whatever those may be. You know, for some people, uh, those what bravery is dealing with things that for other people might seem pretty mundane and Vice versa. You know, Like, you know, personally I don't think that what we do on a lot of our calls that maybe the public thinks is brave for Mm -hmm. me. That's easy. It's fun. Like I'm like, sweet, let's go do this. Like, this is awesome. Like I, there's no overcoming fear involved in that. It's like, almost feels like I'm playing sometimes. Uh, whereas, you know, Dealing with emotional issues in your personal life sometimes can be terrifying and, you know, it's a completely internal battle and, and overcoming those, it takes a ton of bravery. Uh, And yet no one even
0: sees that and it can all happen in the confines of your own head. Tyler, thank you very much for joining me on the bravest kind. I appreciate your time and your willingness to speak openly and like I said, man, our uh, department is really lucky to have you, and I'm excited to see where this career takes you.
1: Yeah, I don't know about that,
0: but I'm lucky to be here. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Yeah, absolutely, man. Had a great time. I will talk to you soon, my man. We'll cool, dude. And that's a wrap on this episode of The Bravest Kind with your host, Ryan Schaefer. Be sure to check out my website, RyanShaefer.com. That's R-Y-A-N-S-H-E-A-F-F-E-R.com for more podcast episodes and information happening in my world. Also, don't forget to subscribe to The Bravest Kind podcast. And if you feel so inclined, please take a moment to leave us a rating for the show. We'll be back at it with a new guest next week. Until then, be brave and be kind in your own lives.